0: This is Monocle On Design, a show where we unpack everything from architecture and craft to furniture and fashion. I'm Nick Manese. On today's show, we visit a textile studio in East London, venture to an Italian piazza for Milan Fashion Week, and meet the incoming president of the American Institute of Architects. All that coming up on Monocle On Design. Manufacturing and craft should be part of the fabric of any decent city, which is why East London Cloth, a textile studio with a new shop set up by Gemma Moulton, is an important part of the UK capital's design and making scene. Located on Viner Street in the city's east, the former garage has been transformed into a workshop where British textiles are turned into smart cafe curtains, pillowcases and tablecloths. Monocle's editor, Josh Fennett, stopped by to lift the veil on the triumphs and tribulations of making in the city.
1: We're sitting in your studio, which is a rather beautiful, light-filled space. I can see cloth out on the side. I can see a little bit of a shop at the front. But tell us what this space is, where you found it, how you found it and when you moved in.
2: So the space is part of a 1960s industrial building. We are on Viner Street, which was very much part of the rag trade back in the day. So there was a lot of manufacturing would have taken place here originally. So the space itself is actually the car garage. So quite fortunately, we have very high ceilings and huge concertina doors at the front, which open right up onto the street, which is very lovely in the summer. And the idea is always that you could see past the till desk and get an idea of what we actually do and and see the products themselves come to life
1: when we think about the products what do we have in front of us i can see some beautiful uh, pillowcases i can see some beautiful cafe curtains all sorts of things and all made in the uk i'm very surprised and heartened to hear as well tell us a little bit about the product range and how it's kind of developed
2: I started off as a very traditional style of curtain maker, making to other people's specifications. For me, that creatively, it wasn't hugely fulfilling. So I wanted to design a range of products that were still made in that very traditional way, but were customizable by size and by fabric to suit specific windows. So we now have two ranges. One of them is... What we would say are made to measure range, which is a range of curtains and very grand round tablecloths. You know, we specify the style, the fabric choice, and then they can be ordered to your specific size. Then we have more bedding, towels, linens, household linens, and they are all ready made and available to buy straight from the shop.
1: And you had an unusual idea for opening a shop in that you took a beautiful space, you, you made it gorgeous, you felt like you were part of the warp and weft of the neighbourhood, as you mentioned, the rag trade, but you didn't actually really have anything to sell when you moved in. How did you adapt to uh, the retail model and how did you kind of, I guess, bed into being part of the neighbourhood?
2: The build of the place itself took about six months. Very ambitiously, we thought it would take six weeks That was not the case at all. We did a lot of the work ourselves, so it was a a long and heavy six months. And then by the time we actually got to the point where we were ready to open, we realised that we hadn't actually made anything for a while, so we were kind of scrapping around in the cupboards trying to find something to offer for our first shop opening day. It was a, a baptism of fire, I would say, but we've met a lot of really wonderful people. I think having a physical shop... It just creates a new layer of understanding of your customer and, you know, what it is that they're looking for from you, how it changes their perspective on what it is that you do and also what their perspective is of what you do based on your website to what they actually see when they come through the door.
1: I often think that about physical retail. How could you ever, you know, it's a bit like a perfume advert on TV. You have no idea of the product. You're just given a sense of it and often Instagram and websites are a good way of marketing things, but sometimes maybe to make a sale you need someone to feel it and to understand it and maybe see some of the the workmanship that goes into it. I've got a question about UK manufacturing. How easy is it to find mills that make textiles and how easy and how big is that market because we are seeing a little bit of reshoring of some manufacturing. I wonder how
2: that's affected
1: you or if these, uh, these mills are old holdouts that have been there forever.
2: Strangely, my relationship with textiles actually started in a silk mill in the town that I grew up in. And I took a job in a local silk mill. And it was a very simple cutting of samples. And I kind of fell in love with the very tactile nature of textiles just seeing the way it was produced gave me a whole new level of respect at the end of the day a lot of us only look at the end product and and really have very little time to delve into to what goes on in the making or the designing of that thing Um, so for me it was almost like a privilege to get to see that and that has given me a basis I think when we looked at our textile range there is certainly a lot of textiles out there that are more affordable producing in various other countries but for me i really wanted to support uk mills so all of our linen ranges are woven in uk-based mills and for us it was it was a commitment thing something that we really don't want to compromise
1: and do people get it because sometimes even when i interview people or when i talk to people about their businesses people have these notions about what they're up to and then they struggle to sometimes explain it to the consumer. I get the sense that when people come here, they understand the importance of manufacturing. They understand why it might cost more than something that has been imported or with a very opaque manner of how it's been manufactured. Do people get it or do you find yourself sometimes having to bring people along for the story?
2: For the most part, I would say the great thing about our customers is they have a genuine interest in the story behind the products. They're already aware that we are manufacturing and making things ourselves and in the UK, which can be a difficult market. And for the most part, people really love the story behind the product. I think it gives them a greater appreciation for what it is that they're actually buying and the skills that are involved in the making process behind it. I think in terms of having a shop, it's, it's such a great thing to, to be able to kind of share our story and share our values give people a little bit more information about the products that we sell.
1: And I suppose a shop makes you part of the community in some sense, but the other question I wanted to ask you is how you become part of a community, I suppose, of artisans or people that make things. You know, there are some beautifully bound books that I can see in the shop, which were obviously made, you mentioned earlier, with some vintage fabrics. How important was it to also engage uh, with the kind of restaurants that would want the Cafe Curtain, the kind of makers who um, had good stories and good yarns and good customers that you could share? How did you build that network?
2: Starting with the Cafe Curtains, which is probably the thing that we are the most well known for. That was totally by accident. In fact, a couple that I was working for just had the fabric and they had someone to make them for them. The whole thing had fallen through and they just asked me if I would make them. People kind of went a bit mad for them. For me, they serve quite a practical purpose, as well as, in my opinion, being quite aesthetically beautiful. But the idea with those is that we designed something that just had longevity. It didn't need to be too faddy in its appearance the design is very simple the linens we choose are quite classic and that's something again that we committed to because we really want them to kind of stand the test of all of the other trends that will inevitably come and go in the next few years they're not the star of the show but a great seller for us in terms of the further community it's been a really great street to be on in terms of creativity. And there's just a great sense of community here. Everyone knows each other. The street very much comes alive in the summer. People are blowing their music out. It's really inspiring to see other people's creative processes. And it feels like a community more so than Anywhere else I've ever lived or worked beforehand.
1: Tell me what the plans are. Would you like to stay here? Do you need a bigger space because the orders are coming in? Is there an intimacy to this, or is there maybe a new product even that's coming out this year? What does the year look like, as well as bedding into the area and continuing to to kind of convert people to British made uh, manufacturing?
2: If our landlords allow us to, we would very much love to stay here forever. <laughs> My opinion, as long as East Lindow. We'll
1: make sure they listen to uh, listen to the interview.
2: I think this will always, to me, be the heart of the business for us one thing we would very much like to do is invest in makers of the future just to make sure that these jobs and these processes and these industries continue so an idea for us is to develop a work room perhaps not in london but you know still in the UK where we could sort of build a bit more of a workforce train people up give people a newfound respect for the sort of making process of everything I work very much on instinct so So (laughs) it's probably likely (laughs) that I'll just decide to do something and then we'll do it this year we have a few new things coming we have our own range of silks one of the mills in the town that I grew up in uh, approached me about having a silk woven and I was very keen to see their archive collection because they they go right back to the 1600s so they pulled out a very vast collection of silks that were originally designed by the Huguenots in Spitalfields in their original place and we decided to redevelop we chose three silks and we decided to really develop those the process has taken (laughs) about a year so far and I'm sure they are very frustrated with my, yeah, with, <laughs> with my creative fussiness, shall we say. That's something that's on the cards this year. And then we will also be expanding our made-to-measure and our ready-made range as well.
0: Gemma Moulton in conversation with Monocle's editor, Josh Fennett.
2: Watch out for Monocle Films. Since launch, Monocle's eagle-eyed filmmakers and journalists have cut and framed visually vivid dispatches and documentaries from all corners of the globe. From industry reports and intrepid journeys to one-on-one interviews with voices that inspire.
3: You only have one chance in life to do something like this and be, be part of it. If it works or not, who knows, but you can only try.
2: With hundreds of films available, there's plenty of exploring to be done. Just head to monocle.com film now.
0: We're heading to Italy now to recap on a highlight from last month's Milan Fashion Week. Typically, fashion shows involve models on catwalks in beautiful venues – but fine tailoring brand Brioni presented its latest collection a little differently. At its showcase during the event, mannequins were arranged as if they were in mid conversation in a bustling piazza in the Lombardy capital. And it was here that Monocle's fashion editor, Natalie Theodosi, met Norbert Stormful, Brioni's design director. We join them now as Norbert describes how the company's archives provided inspiration. They only started out as two tailors in Rome and they were really incredible because they
4: made pieces out of very unexpected fabrics. They would use women's haute couture fabrics or or chakars or silks for decorations, you know. And especially for the evening wear, when they started out in the 40s, it was accepted for men to wear either black or ivory. It was very fashionable to wear navy, you know? And then our two guys would show orange. So it's really like, almost like a disrupting feeling, almost like avant-garde feeling of this tailor. So you find those pieces in our archive, pieces which changed the, the, the way we see men's work. was so innovative. They would have trunk shows. They would have a show in the Waldorf Astoria and they would flood the whole first floor of the Waldorf Astoria. There was like water this high and they would make a defile there. Run to New York, they would have a show in the plane. It was in the fifties, you know? So you have to really think what the Brioni Archive is. So I always want to bring it back because there is so much history involved it. You know? Translates yeah, yeah. into
3: the collection, yeah, exactly. It's great to see yeah, yeah. that you bring those, uh, those memories back, and those elements exactly. back.
4: For inspiration, we thought about an Italian square. So we have all these kind of features, people just walking around, all from different kind of perspectives. Some are very traditional dress, some are very sporty dress. So the whole range of what we do for Brioni here. He's starting uh, as well with the Moonswrap, which is the third collection now, and uh, it's doing as well very it's well. It's very well yeah. received. I yeah, think there yeah, was yeah, a yeah, need yeah, for... Yeah. Uh, you know, we, need, yeah, yeah, yeah. we need it, and I think it's nice that in a house, the men's and women's, they really speak the same language. Also nice to bring our quality to the women, you know, because I think it's quite rare to have these kind of fabrics uh, for the women's wear. And apart from the archives
3: yeah. also, does Being in Milan and Italian design or buildings like this one that we are in here inspire you in a way when you you think about a collection?
4: Brioni is originally from Rome, so part of the design is in Rome and then the commercial area is in Milan, so there's a split office. I'm fortunate enough to live in Rome, so so I see all these antiques and and I'm just like surrounded by air and lightness and sunshine all the time.
3: always choose such landmarks in Milan as well to show the
4: collection yes. that it so, all comes together. Yeah, we chose this particular location because it's the Pinacoteca de Pere- Pereira and it will open as a modern part of the galleries. So it's a preview it's a of, of, sort of, of, kind of history and yeah, modernity yeah, yeah. coming together. So when you're coming in, you have the part which is classic Milan. But then you come in here in this hidden, secret location and then it's it's very modern sudden. And I like the kind of modernity uh, with our clothes as well to show that Brioni is really like uh, for now, because this is really what I want to do with the brand, to really get it modernized, make it for the modern man, make it for the man who travels, for the woman who travels, to really give this uh, feeling to the collection as well. And if you
3: would say quality and this Classic,
4: exactly. timeless
3: pieces. What modern men and women are looking for yes, most these I days.
4: For me, it's the most modern thing you can do. You can buy quality pieces, and then you can wear them forever. I'm wearing it at Turtleneck. I bought twelve years ago. I was not a Brioni customer then, but it's Brioni. I think we have to come back to this, to be honest, to save this planet, to take the time, and to really invest in, in this incredible pieces and also showed what people are able to do with their hands because you don't see it but all of this is done by hand everything is done by hand you can see everything so i want to show this handcraft on the the highest level. I wanted to give it modernity. I wanted to make young people excited, and I think that's what they're doing. You know, You're to, to achieving come, yeah, yeah, it. yeah, yeah, yeah. I think yeah. this is this is Brioni. I want Brioni to be part of the 21st century of 2023. I want people who wear Brioni are with their time, you know. That's that's the most important thing to me, you know.
0: Norbert Stormful there, Brioni design director, and our fashion editor, Natalie Theodosi.
1: How long do you think it would take you to travel the world to hear from the most perceptive and relevant speakers on the global news agenda? To mix that up with a trip to visit the business people benchmarking best practice in media, retail and hospitality. And to make time too, to delve into a rich mix of great design stories and rich cultural discoveries. Well, you can do all of this in just 60 minutes each week by tuning into The Curator, a whistle-stop tour of the best of the last seven days on Monocle 24. Subscribe and download the show now or listen every weekend on Monocle 24.
0: The American Institute of Architects, or AIA, was established in 1857 to advocate for architects and has been advancing the profession in the United States ever since. Kimberly Dowdell is currently the AIA's vice president and is due to take the top posting at the organisation next year. She's also a principal with architecture firm HOK in Chicago. Kimberly spoke with Monocle's Washington correspondent Chris Chermack at the recent winter meetings of the US Conference of Mayors. She began by describing why she looks forward to leading the American Institute of Architects next year
5: one of the reasons why I'm really excited about being engaged with with the AA at the highest level of leadership is our real thrust toward social equity and climate action. I think those are two things that that actually here at the U.S. Conference of Mayors we've heard a lot about, so it's great to kind of get reinforcement that we're on to something with our real interest in and commitment to racial and gender equity, as well as Sustainability fostering sustainable growth in our cities, towns and, and you know all areas throughout the world, frankly
3: Well as you say here at the u s Conference of mayors where we're meeting, we've heard a lot about that, so it seems like the goals are aligned in that way. but tell me a little more about what cooperation between architects and mayors looks like to achieve some of those goals.
5: Yeah, well part of the reason why I'm here is because they asked me to give some brief remarks. And so one of the things that I shared yesterday was that architects have the power to help mayors see and create a better future. And one of the things that I think is really great about being an architect is having the ability to see the future in, in a sense, and to, to create you know a vision that other people can buy into. And I think that's a big part of uh, why architecture is so valuable. One of the great tools that we have is something called the design charrette, where we work with the conditions of a given site, a design problem or a situation that the, the city or the community is trying to, to work through, whether it's they need a new park or they need a you know new hospital or airport or, or something you know, something that needs to be built and then actually meaningfully engaging the community as to what that can and should look like. And architects have the gift of being able to physically translate those thoughts and ideas and desires into shapes and into forms and into effectively buildings and other built interventions that are represented so that the community stakeholders, leaders can see what they're going to be uh, able to experience in the future, which I think is a really powerful tool.
3: One of your mantras is improving lives by design, which is kind of what you're describing there, yeah. essentially.
5: Improving the quality of people's lives by design. I know this this may or may not be a question, but one of the things I think is really important is, you know, thinking about the health and well-being of our communities and, and how design can facilitate that. And so, you know, I've been thinking a lot about life expectancy and, and health outcomes in different communities and how your zip code can, you know, to some extent predict how long you're gonna live, and I think that's something as a profession, as a society, you know, we need to confront more more squarely, so that's something I've been really interested in talking more about and thinking about.
3: I wonder if you could give me a particular example from Chicago where, where you're based at the moment of how you're kind of putting that idea into practice.
5: Yeah, so one of the things that I'm doing in Chicago with, with HOK, HOK is a member of the Chicago Central Area Committee, a former colleague of mine and dear friend and mentor, Planning Commissioner Maurice Cox, he, he's been leading an effort called Invest Southwest, which is really pointing to the fact that the south and west sides of Chicago, which are predominantly black and brown, have been disinvested for decades, which is the case in many other cities. But his team have really put forward an effort to consciously invest in those communities and putting out developer RFPs, finding financing to get projects built in those areas. So part of what I've been doing with the Chicago Central Area Committee is actually helping the planning department envision, you know, what those those city lots can be developed into or how certain buildings can be repurposed for the benefit of the community. So those are some of the things that are happening in Chicago to kind of right some of those wrongs of the past in terms of, you know, public policy that has been, you know, harmful to, uh, to communities of color and, and poor communities.
3: As you talked about repurposing there, I think that's been one of the themes here among the mayors has been a lot of talk about how to increase the supply of housing, affordable housing in particular. A lot of that hasn't necessarily always been about starting from scratch, it's been about reviving downtowns, reviving inner cities, reviving neighborhoods that that have struggled over the past decades. Talk to me a little more about what that looks like from an architect's perspective. How easy is it to, to repurpose buildings? It, it feels like a challenge that a lot of mayors here are, are struggling with, frankly.
5: Yeah, well, I'm really passionate about this topic because the reason why I decided to go into architecture as a little kid, like 11 years old, in fact, before that age, maybe like at five, I wanted to be a doctor. But at 11, I decided to switch to architecture because there was this one particular building in downtown Detroit wow. called the Hudson's Department Store. It actually closed the year that I was born, so I never got to experience it as a place of commerce, but it was this—it ju- was the second largest department store in the world for a period of time. It took up an entire city block in downtown Detroit, so I always experienced it as a boarded up ghost of its former self. And unfortunately, that building was demolished when I was in high school, but when I was 11 I had this sort of epiphany that I wanted to become an architect so that I could restore that building and help kind of bring health to the downtown area. So. I could be like a a doctor for the built environment. So that's kind of where the seed was planted, if you will. And so I firmly believe that our existing buildings are some of our greatest assets. In fact, there's a saying that the most sustainable building is the one that already exists. And so I'm a huge advocate of finding ways to preserve our existing building stock, especially those that are architecturally significant or well-built. I mean, buildings that were built 100 years ago They're very well built. Unless there's been a tremendous amount of water infiltration and other things that compromise the structure, there are creative ways, I think, that uh, we should be thinking about restoring those buildings because it's not just the building itself, but the memories attached to that building. So 40 years ago this week, the Hudson's Department store closed its doors for the last time. And I posted about it because of the sort of significance of that building to me. I posted in social media, and I can't tell you how many people who are older than me, because they actually experienced the store, they had stories about that building, about you know Christmas and visiting Santa and buying certain things and just experiences with their parents or grandparents. And I mean that that store meant something to that community. And that I mean that's one example in one city, but think about all the buildings that have significance to people and even for people who are coming in and new and you know new to the area they'll feel some sense of connection to the history of that place via the architecture and so in terms of you know to respond to your question about how to how to actually do it i think you have to get really creative around financing and you have to really tell the stories of why it's important part of what i do at hok i'm a marketing principal and i think it's really important to market architecture. You know, when it comes to changing hearts and minds about demolishing certain structures or doing things that I think would detract from the urban built environment, I think it's important that we tell the stories, that we, you know, really amplify the value. That doesn't necessarily translate into dollars and cents, but it has this greater intrinsic value. So I think that there's a there's an equity story there, I think there's a sustainability story there and just finding ways to, to make it happen, and just just be really creative.
3: You gave a beautiful example from Detroit, from Hudson. Is there one currently that you're particularly proud of that you look at that has been repurposed in the way you describe?
5: Well, there's an effort underway right now in Chicago, and it's an initiative also being led by the Chicago Planning Department called LaSalle Reimagining. We'll have to look up. I think it's something like that or Imagining LaSalle Street. But the point of it is... Taking LaSalle Street, which is primarily commercial corridor, very tall, beautiful buildings with a lot of office vacancy, frankly. And so the idea is to convert some of those offices into residential. The city of Chicago just supported that formally through policy. And so that was a signal to me, like, okay city government is taking this seriously because it's one thing to have an idea that comes from you know designers and planners and and other civic thought leaders but it's another thing for the government to actually support it and so i'm glad to see that that's moving forward and i'm really looking forward to understanding how it works from a financial perspective and just seeing how designers will take the real challenge of converting commercial into residential
3: is part of the shift that is happening needs to happen that not only mayors, but also designers, are looking less at building something out in the suburbs and more at building or repurposing something within the cities, within the downtowns of our communities.
5: Yeah, I think so. I mean, we have so much potential within our cities. There are a lot of, there's, you know, depending on where you are, there's, you know, sometimes a good amount of vacancy. And so how do we look at really capturing those opportunities instead of building outside of the city walls? And I think that, you know, it's just really important to understand how to be more strategic with our resources, which are limited. And I, you know, one of the things I said to the mayors yesterday was that architects are the civic problem solvers you didn't know you needed. And, and so I really wanna advocate for architects and mayors to partner on solving some of our greatest problems. And, and one of those issues is tackling blight, tackling vacancy finding ways to ensure that we're protecting the health safety and welfare of the public, which is the you know really the duty of, of the architect and addressing those health disparities and you know to my personal mission, improving the quality of people's lives by design.
3: Just one final question if I could. One of the things I know you've talked about as well is the importance of encouraging finding ways for more minorities, people of color, to enter the profession of architecture. Why is that important, I guess, from your perspective? What kind of different perspective does that bring to the profession?
5: Yeah, that's a great question. The built environment impacts everyone. And I think it's really important that the designers who author our present day and our future reflect the communities that we serve. And so that's one of the reasons why it's so important that communities aren't just approached by people from outside, but there are, you know, there are influences from within the community, influences outside. I think, you know, having a diversity of thought is important and that diversity of thought also comes with diversity relative to race and gender and ethnicity, religion, you know, all the different types of people that, that exist live somewhere, they work somewhere, they play somewhere. And so I think it's, it's really valuable for architects to also sort of come from a, a very diverse array of perspectives.
0: Kimberly Dowdell there, in conversation with Monocle's Washington correspondent, Chris Chermack. And that's all for today's show. For more design stories, listen to our five-minute midweek bonus show, Monocle On Design Extra, which airs on Thursdays. And if you enjoy print, then do pick up a copy of Monocle magazine as well. It's on all good newsstands now. Today's episode was produced by Maylee Evans. I'm Nick Manice, and you can reach me on nm at monocle.com. Thanks for listening.